All right, well, we hope you have your Bibles with you, and if you do, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue looking at the book of Ephesians here on Sunday morning. And today we find ourselves in verse 17, so we will begin by reading our text. Paul writing to the Ephesian church, he says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to the to work of all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to, the, to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you may put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and in holiness. Growing up, my parents blessed us by taking us to many various vacation destinations. But the one type of vacation that they would never even consider uh, doing would be camping. My mom and dad's idea of camping was called a holodome if you remember what those are. Indoor pools at a Holiday Inn. That was a big deal back then. But camping was just out of the question. So when I had the opportunity to go camping for the very first time with my friends, all from the area, so there was about 10 of us, one parent was crazy enough to take all 10 of us camping for the weekend. We went to a place called the Mississippi Palisades. Maybe you've been there. It's a gorgeous area. But unfortunately, the weekend that we went, it rained every single day. And the mom and dad were disappointed, but we, 10, we thought this couldn't get any better. For the hiking was sliding down muddy hills and then climbing up and then getting caught halfway, trying to scratch and claw our way to the top. And by the end of Saturday night, going into Sunday morning, you can imagine that we were filthy beyond imagination. Our clothes were so caked with mud that when they dried, they were stiff. We were walking around, you know. It was unbelievable how messy we actually were. So my friend's parents said, well, we can't let you guys go home like that. So (laughs) camping, I guess, these campgrounds have what they call public showers. If you survive a public shower in a campground, there's nothing that's going to affect you going forward. You are inoculated against everything at that point. So thank goodness that each shower had its own little compartment and it wasn't uh, a community fellowship in that way. And I'll never forget, after taking my shower, I realized that I hadn't brought a change of clothes with me. 
The only clothes that I had available to me were the ones that, of course, were standing in the corner due to the dried mud. And I remember vividly, I guess you call it psychologically scarred by this event, after being clean from that shower, the disgusting feeling that it was to put on those clothes, because again, it was a quarter mile from where our campsite was. And here I am walking back, and I remember my friend's dad saying, what happened to you? Well, I took a shower and I realized I didn't have a change of clothes. And he goes, you are the most inexperienced camper I've ever met in my entire life. I don't know a better story that segues into our text than that. Why is it as a Christian, being renewed and cleansed by the renewing spirit of, the, of God and his word, being born again, would we ever consider putting on the dirty, filthy clothes of the old man once again? I don't know about you, but that's just something that uh, I can't even comprehend why someone would want to do that. And yet, too many of us do each and every day. Paul the Apostle now, after giving the Ephesians the incredible theological uh, understanding of all that they've been blessed with in Christ Jesus and the grace that has been given to them, taking the first three chapters to illuminate them and all that God has done for them, he now comes to chapter 4 where he begins by saying, now walk worthy of your calling. Meaning, it's up, uh, up to us now to respond properly to all that God has done for us. You know, in the Old Testament, the conditions were, you obey me, and God said, I will bless you. But in the New Testament, he now says, I have blessed you with everything. Now obey me. And he wants the motivation in the heart to be of love. Love is the most powerful motivator that we can have to lead and guide us in our walks with Jesus Christ. So why then, in the newness of the life in which he has provided for us, would we ever consider putting on the old man, the old clothes, the filthy clothes, once again? And that's the encouragement that Paul is giving the instruction that he is giving here in the beginning of our text. Notice with me in verse 17 as we continue, he says, This I say therefore. Again, the word therefore is to again remind us that this is now a concluding statement, helping us wrap up the thoughts that previously uh, preceded it. He's, ba- he's basically saying this, that God has done everything that he can for you from blessing you with the blessings that are found in heavenly places through Christ Jesus, giving you the grace uh, that is immeasurable, also equipping you with the Holy Spirit. He's also equipped us with the Word of God, and He's given pastors and teachers to equip us further here on this side of heaven to allow us to grow into maturity. But what does that maturity look like? Well, as we said last week, I believe that a mature Christian is one who learns and therefore then is responsible to all that he knows or she knows, meaning that we have an obligation to apply it into our lives and allow God to work in and through that application. It's important that you and I understand that God loves us too much to leave us the way he found us. And after you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and that new life is given, he now wants you to continue in that new life in a process that the Bible calls sanctification. 
taking you out of the world and conforming you further into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, translating us from death to life, from darkness to light. Our lives should be a reflection of the truth that is in us, that a new birth has taken place, that we are truly a new creation in Jesus Christ. And Paul says we must walk differently than those who are around us. Not in self-righteousness. Not in pride. Governed by humility and love. We must be different. One wrote this, and I love this, and I want to throw it out there for you to chew on as we go through the Word today. He wrote and said that conversion is a crisis that leads to a process. Chew on that as we continue through our text. He says, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk or live. You can use that word live to help you understand that word walk. As the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. And he goes now to indicate why the Gentiles are walking in the way they are. Now, The classification of Gentile, of course, means one who didn't grow up in Judaism. One who was apart from the covenant of God through Moses. One who was unaware of all that God may have done in and through and for His people throughout the Old Testament. But as individuals who were Gentiles who didn't grow up in Judaism were coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ and becoming Christians, Paul is saying now it's it's only our personal responsibility that leads us to live differently. We must think differently and therefore live differently, conduct our lives differently amongst the people in whom God has called us from. The reason that the individuals apart from God, these Gentiles that he speaks of, do what they do is, number one, it's due to the the futility of their minds. The word futility, futility, excuse me, means uselessness. Now, what does he mean by that? It doesn't mean that they're useless in life. It's just that they're useless, their thinking is useless in relationship to God. They don't understand. They don't get it. Their understanding is darkened. And we'll see why in just a moment. He further explains this futility as he continues in verse 18. Having their understanding darkened. And this means the knowledge of God. They don't understand God. They don't know God in the fallen state that they are in. So their understanding, their comprehension, their knowledge of God, it's been darkened. Number one, because they've been alienated from the life of God. There is nothing that they can do in and of themselves to understand the God of the Bible. Paul made it abundantly clear when he wrote to the Corinthian church that the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. You know, it's interesting when I meet someone who doesn't know Jesus and they begin to explain to me their concept of God. It's always very interesting. It always ends up to be an eclectic collage of various opinions and ideas that they've pulled from here and there. Some are very comprehensive, others are very simple. But they are truly unaware of who God is. 
their natural state does not allow them to understand and to know who God is. They must first be born again. God has given us all kinds of examples in the world to show that He does exist, creation being one of them. One of the most deadly philosophies that ever impacted our world was the idea of an evolutionary system of of creation. Again, I believe so fully that if you can believe the first verse of the Bible, you can believe everything that follows it. I love those who continue to champion the cause for a seven-literal-day understanding of creation. Some are baffled by how is it possible that this whole world was created in seven days. That is not a testament to their understanding of their world. That's more of a testament to their lack of understanding of who God is. Because as I've said numerous times before, I'm surprised it took him six days to create the world. He rested on the seventh and watched football in order to do Malnati's. Does God really need six days to accomplish what He needs to accomplish? Of course not. There was a purpose in the plan and why He created the way He did. But the creation around us speaks to the existence of God. Paul goes on to say that every person still has within them the echo chamber of the fallen spirit, the conscience of a person. At that moment that our spirit died when Adam and Eve fell into sin in the garden, that echo chamber, that place of residence where the spirit dwelt, remained, and therefore the conscience works within it. But we know that that conscience can be formed by the social standards of our society, can't it? Someone apart from God is going to look to the society in which they live to understand what is right and wrong even often uh, violating their, old, their own personal conscience to allow them to do things that the world says is socially acceptable, and yet for some reason they feel wrong inside. And Paul said all of this is a testament to say to the individual that God exists. But the knowledge of the existence of, the, of God and the knowledge of God is something totally different. Yes, I know God exists, but now through Christ, I know God personally. I interact with Him. I have a relationship with Him through Christ. And as I have grown over these years, as you have grown over the years of your Christian faith, you have grown in, in, uh, in the knowledge and the grace of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the depth of His Word. But Paul says that this is impossible for those who do not know God. Because, number one, they're alienated from God. They're alienated from God because of their ignorance that is in them. That means that they simply don't get it. And why don't they get it? He further explains by saying, because of the blindness of their heart. We know that the enemy of this world has blinded the occupants of this world who do not know Jesus Christ. And the beginning of the new birth is God opening the eyes of the individuals to the reality and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a work of the Spirit within their life. It's not something that they can do for themselves, but it's something that God is willing and ready to do for all who turn to Him. Opening their eyes to the knowledge of God. So much of what we have adopted in the way of philosophy throughout our world today has one common element within it. It is the abandonment of the knowledge of God in each and every case. 
we see that as philosophy continues, as the ideologies continue throughout our world, as we get farther and farther away from God, those philosophies and those ideologies reflect that abandonment. And as God says, whatever you sow, you shall reap. How's it been going for us lately? Are these ideas bringing about the utopia in which they hope to produce? Or is our world being plunged into a period of chaos like we've never seen before? But Paul says that this is all clearly indicative of the individual apart from God. He then further goes to describe this individual in verse 19. Who being past feelings, it's a term meaning callous to the things of God. The more and the more an individual resists God, the harder they become towards God. It's a state called the hardness of one's heart. And as people are given opportunities to receive Christ, as they've been given the information concerning Christ, each and every occasion that they decide to refuse and reject it, guess what occurs? Their hearts become hardened. And it becomes even more difficult to reach them for Christ. Unfortunately, that's the way many have solidified their position before God today. That's why it seems like it's becoming more and more difficult to break through to them because of the hardness of their hearts towards God. I've talked to many very intellectual people who say, we've tried Christianity, and now it's time that we evolve past it. Really? To what? That's the $64,000 question. Where do we go from here? We see the impact of Christianity throughout the world. And we see that when it's applied properly, now there are many incidents where Christianity was applied improperly. And those are dark stains upon the Christian church. But where it has been applied properly, you see a life that you didn't see before within that society, that culture. But these individuals now have hardened their hearts to God. And then in verse 19, he gives us three distinction of these individuals, uh, characteristics, if, if you were, to help us understand who these people are. Now, let's be clear. Paul is not doing this to uh, ridicule these people. He's explaining the psyche of these people, why these people are doing what they are doing. Okay? And let us also remember that this was you and I before we came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, it was a work of God's grace. We can't even take credit for that, can we? So let us understand that Paul is simply explaining the position of the individual apart from Christ. A position that we all occupied prior to coming to Christ. But he gives three characteristics now, often the English words used to describe the Greek words are, let me just say it this way, woefully insufficient, okay? The Greek language is such a robust language. It's, it's a language that's very descriptive when understanding of it. The first of these three characteristics is lewdness. Lewdness. Now, let us understand that when we think of lewdness, we may have a definition 
that is uh, incompatible with what Paul is saying. This term that was used by the King James, New King James writers and has been updated in the newer translations to better describe the word still falls short. It would be better translated this, this word lewdness is abandonment of moral standards. That's really what Paul is saying here through the Greek word that is used. The abandonment of moral standards. Do we not see that happening today? This leads to, of course, what the Bible says, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. This lewdness then leads to the uncleanness, number two. Notice with me in the verse 19, uncleanness. Uncleanness is sexual immorality. The first indication that the moral standards of God have been abandoned is sexual immorality. I think that's very interesting and consistent to what we see here. But then the word greediness is used to conclude the three. Some older translations use the word covetousness. But it's the continuous appetite for more, 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 and more. That's what he's saying here. So the individuals whose um, mind has been darkened, whose eyes have been blinded, play out their life living according to the lusts of their flesh, abandoning any moral standard in which has arrived, leading to sexual uncleanness with a constant appetite to fulfill the wants and the needs of the flesh more and more and more. And that's exactly what we see. The root cause, the basic fundamental elements of what we see happening. What we see happening in our world today is directly correlated to the abandonment of God. Now, I have discovered that the most theological uh, impacts found in the New Testament sometimes are contained in the smallest words. And we find that true here in verse 20. But you. But you. So who's he speaking to? The person next to you? Yeah, well, yeah. But if you hold a Bible and you are reading this verse and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this means you. But you. So there isn't any ambiguity into he is, to whom he is speaking to. Notice what he says. You have not so learned Christ. You know better. Oh, if I had a dollar for every time my dad said that to me over the years. Why did you do what you do? You know better. Yep. <laughs> Are you going to do it again? Yep. Yeah. We know better. God has opened our eyes. Our mind has been flooded with the light of God's Word. We are no longer ignorant of the things of God. We know better. We have learned Christ. And Paul says, If you indeed, verse 21, have heard Him and have been taught by Him, obviously at this point it's through His Word, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off, take off, concerning your formal conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness 
and holiness. Now that you've been born again, now that you've been given that new life, now that you know better, it's time for us to walk accordingly. It is obvious to me that the New Testament is replete with examples of Paul indicating to all of us that what we truly think is what we truly will do. Meaning that if we say we believe something, the indication of that truth or the validation of that belief is demonstrated in what we do with it, how we apply it, how we allow it to play itself out and to manifest itself in and through our life. As we have said numerous times before, can we say we truly believe something and then not act upon what we say we believe? The question then is begged, do we truly believe it? Do we truly, uh, have we truly grasped that? And do we truly allow it to govern our lives? So Paul says it is so important that after taking that proverbial shower in the campground, we don't go and return to our old clothes once again. Christ has taken that robe of filthiness from us through His crucifixion and has robed us with His righteousness through His resurrection to allow us to stand positionally perfect before God the Father in and through Christ. Oh, I wish that was true physically, don't you? Practically. But it's still playing out. We're a work in progress. That sanctification is still occurring by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. That's why we should show each and every one of us grace, grace, and more grace. Because we're all works in progress. None of us have arrived. Though sometimes I think some believe they have. And you just want to remind them But Paul is saying we must live in accordance to who we truly are in Christ. Taking off the old and putting on the new. Abandoning the former life and adopting fully the life of God through the Spirit and His Word. For one wrote, he says, For Paul, the mind slash thinking is the source of the outward actions. No longer are believers to think like the rest of the world. Rather, they are to embrace a new mentality that will enable a new approach to life. And I believe this is what Paul summed up when he wrote in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's what it's all about. The new life, the transformation, becoming more like the likeness of Jesus rather than the you know, pitiful example of the world. You and I are a new creation in Christ and God has started a work in you through a radical crisis called conversion and leading to the process of sanctification. So Paul, 
not wanting his readers to simply think of that as theoretical, begins to move into verse 25, and he begins to flesh it out a little bit with a practical application. And notice with me that there's a list of things that we are to not to do, and then immediately it's followed by what we should do. Okay? Here's what not to do. Get rid of that. And here's what to do. Paul uses this type of example because it, it uh, I think, mirrors the, the uh, theological position of sins of commission and sins of omission. Doing those things that we're not supposed to do is a sin of commission. Not doing the things that we are supposed to do is a sin of omission. And so Paul now is saying here, abandon this behavior and adopt this. Or as one says, remove and replace. However you want to think of it, this is what Paul is indicating by the following verses. Again, therefore, leads us up again to ask, why is it there? And he says, therefore, putting away. Notice that it's an imperative. It means getting rid of, eliminating completely. That's what that word means. Number one, lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. The first thing that he he indicates is truthfulness. We as Christians in a society of information chaos, leaving people in the lurch not knowing what to believe or who to believe, we must be a beacon of light in this darkness and speak truth. Now, trust me, truth doesn't go over all that well anymore, does it? Of course, truth must be governed by love and compassion, or it can be a weapon in and of itself, if not so. But we must be truthful. We must speak the truth, even if it is frowned upon, rejected, or it leads to our cancellation. We are not going to stand before Christ and Him say to us, Well done, thou good and faithful canceled servant. Enter into the joy of, my, of your Lord. In fact, if we are canceled, maybe we are doing something right. I'll just throw that out there. But he indicates here by stating that we are members of one another, he indicates here that he believes that truthfulness is a foundational uh, point to unity within the church. Truthfulness. We have the responsibility to be truthful with one another. Sometimes it's very, very hard. Do these genes make me look fat? You know, type of questions. What do you think? You know, (laughs) throw it back on them, you know. Secondly, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Anger, of course, is an emotion that even God expresses throughout the Bible. Of course, when Jesus displayed anger with the money changers, we called that righteous anger. Being a fallen individual, I don't know if we can claim righteous anger to justify our anger. I don't know if we can be angry without, with perfect motives each and every time, as Jesus could. But anger is an emotion that we struggle with. But there's a caveat. That anger must not lead us to sin. It must not lead us to sin. An outward action produced by that anger that would violate God's Word in one way or another. 
So he is asking for self-control through the Spirit. And when anger presents itself, it must be governed and harnessed by the Spirit of God and the Word of God and must not be allowed to manifest itself in sin. And then he adds, of course, not letting the sun go down on your wrath, meaning don't let that anger fester. That anger festering within the heart of an individual will poison that heart, will lead to a deep bitterness maybe towards the person who has offended them. But festering anger. Some of the most volatile people that I have experienced in my ministry are those who have swallowed their anger over the years without dealing with it biblically and kept, just, just kept it in day after day, week after week, month after month. And then you know what happens, right? They explode. And it's usually devastating when it occurs. I was reading one commentator who said he had a woman come uh, to his church years ago. And she said, well, when I get angry, I just explode and then I'm all better. And he goes, no, not the way it's meant to work. Justifying her actions, dismissing them. Oh, we will experience anger, but that anger must be placed in the context of the Spirit and the Word of God. I have to admit, I watch the news, I get angry. I see what's happening in our nation, in our school systems, I get angry. But I must allow God to govern that anger. And it must not manifest itself in a way that dishonors or brings uh, repute to God in any way, shape, or form. I think of Nathan going to David the king and his sin, David's sin, giving reason for the nations to blaspheme God. Though I'm angry, I don't want to do anything that would cause anyone to blaspheme God. So often I have to take the anger that I am feeling to the Lord and again, cover it with the word of God, prayer, and allow the spirit to work in my life. Not letting it fester. Nor, verse 27, look at this, in that festering, giving a place to the devil. That's descriptive, isn't it? That is very, very descriptive. And it tells me that anger can be the bedrock for all kinds of problems unless we deal with it properly. And he goes on in verse 28. Let him who stole steal no longer but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good that he may have something to give him who has need. This is an incredibly rich verse. An individual stealing in any type of capacity, 99.9% of the time is stealing to serve himself. Coveting, wanting something that he can't have. But Paul says, cease, we should not steal anything from anyone, from your employer, from the government. Nothing makes me more angry than filling out my tax form every year. I'm paying for what, you know? Lord, there's a lake right behind our house. Let's go find a fish and open up its mouth because I don't want to give them my money. But it's stealing. But here Paul says to work. Now, obviously, the Bible says clearly that if you don't work, you don't eat. Work is good. Work is necessary. Work is part of the fallen scenario in which we occupy today. 
but he governs the work. And notice how he governs it. He gives us a principle that is superior to just self-fulfillment, self-satisfaction, self-provision. Work that you may provide for others the needs in which they have. Isn't that extraordinary when you think about it? It's one of those things that I would encourage all of us to take a step back on all of these and just let them sink in for a while. Because again, this changes everything. Paul did it himself. He led by example. As he would work to provide for himself and his companions that are with him as a tent maker, so he wouldn't be a financial burden to the society or the city in which he was trying to minister to. Wow, how different is that, right? Than what we've seen here. So when we do work, let us work that we may provide for others. Verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. This means more than just simply swearing. And I cringe when Christians swear. I just have to be honest with you. I cringe when Christians swear. Because out of this mouth we curse and we praise God, right? Curse others and praise God. We should not swear, okay? If our society deems a word a bad word, then we should not use that word. My father used to tell me all the time that if we could, you know, it just shows our lack of intellect if we can't find a better word to use than that one. But it means more than that. The word corrupt words here means any type of communication, verbal communication, that corrupts another person or themselves. That corruption is an erosion, a decay, tearing someone down with what we say, often to make ourselves look better. These things should not occur in the life of the Christian. Of course, he is looking at the new-founded church. He wants unity and edification to be found within the new-formed church. And he knows that if corrupt words are used back and forth between people, the edification is not going to take place, but just simply the degradation of the individual. And Paul says that should not be. And how do I know that? Reading the remainder of the verse... But that should be abandoned, the corrupt words, and we should adopt, but what is good for, nece- uh, for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. The Greek phrase there is very interesting in the original language. When he talks about imparting grace, he's saying this, that what we say should come from a heart willing to show someone else grace. That's what he's saying here. Now think about that. If if it is my desire to express grace to someone, then I think of that before I choose the words in which I use and then think about the tone in which those words are expressed. Because that then leads to edification rather than the dismantling of the life that I, of the individual that I'm speaking to. So our hearts should be inclined to show grace. And the speech that we use should resemble that heart, seek to fulfill that heart's desire that we may build each other up. 
in Christ. Now, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What does he mean by that? First of all, it's an interesting term that he uses, the word grieve there. It's a human trait. It means sadness. It's the expression of sadness throughout an emotion. It gives a personal identity to the Spirit, doesn't it? That if he can feel such an emotion, that he can be saddened by something that I do. So then, of course, the next logical question would be, what is that something that would cause the Spirit to grieve over me? Well, if you go through the New Testament letters that Paul had written, you discover that what it is is living contrary and in defiance to the work of sanctification of the Spirit within your life. You still have the choice to choose. Will you follow the old life and apply it? Or will you allow the new life to be played out in and through you? for the glory of God. And if we choose to disobey, if we choose to walk contrary to the work of sanctification that the Spirit of God is trying to do within our life, making us more like Jesus each and every day, now ultimately that will be fulfilled. But along the way, you can resist that process. Very interesting for those who like a little uh, something to chew on, Romans chapter 8, verse 30 is the outline of salvation. And in it, you see this progression, predestined, called, justified, uh, and glorified. The one that's missing is sanctification. The reason being, I believe that Paul uh, did not insert sanctification there is because in each step of the process in verse 30 of Romans, He, it is God who governs these things, the predestination, the calling, the justification, and the glorification. Why didn't He add sanctification there? Because though God is doing the work in you, and that God is giving you His Word and His Spirit to accomplish that work, we can resist that work. Something to consider. When we choose to disobey when we choose to disregard the direction of God through His Word confirmed by the Spirit in our life, we can cause Him to grieve over us as individuals. Because God is working for us for that day of redemption, that return. Now, this does not affect your salvation. The salvation is contained in what God is doing but it certainly impacts your sanctification. Excuse me. And he concludes in verses 31 and 32. So let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away, again, eliminated from you with all malice. There's the list of those things that we should not do. Bitterness, here is the expression of the Greek word where it says, we have a taste of resentment in our mouths towards someone else. When we talk about wrath, we're talking about that anger out, angry outburst that can come at any moment, at any time. The anger that he speaks of there is an anger that festers within the heart of the individual. When he talks about clamoring, a word that we often don't use in our society any longer, 
It is screaming at someone to bring them into a position of submission before you. Have you ever had someone elevate the level of their voice simply because they want to dominate a conversation? Or bring you into the suppression of their idea? Or malice? A strong dislike towards someone that has within it the desire to harm them. For these things we shall eliminate from before us. And then in verse 32, and concluding our time together this morning, and he says, be kind. The word be there is become. It's a process that is occurring within you. He says, become like this, and he begins with kindness. That kindness is a kindness that leads and encourages others to act in kindness to the people around them. When he speaks of being tender-hearted, he's speaking of the compassion that we should have for one another and others. And lastly, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. All that Paul instructs us to be is in a harmony with the character of God himself. And we do this because God has shown this to us. Let me close with a few verses for you. We'll have them on the screen so you can read along with me. In Galatians 2.20, Paul said it this way. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 11, just listen to these words, if you will. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And similarly to the church in Colossians, but you now, Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, but now you yourselves are to put off these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Whether uh, there is neither, where, excuse me, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor non-uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is in all in all. Warren Worsby said it this way when he said, physically you are what you eat, but spiritually you are what you think. And therefore, we conclude with this, 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new.